welcome to the new season of the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi, a journalist and political analyst based in Washington, D.C. Today, we'll talk about the current state of the economy in Iran, high inflations, systemic corruption, internal mismanagement, and international sanctions, and how they all impact the lives of everyday Iranians. My guest today is Bijan Khajapur, a managing partner at UNEPA based in Vienna and a leading analyst of Iranian political and economic affairs. Bijan, welcome back to the Iran podcast. Thank you very much, Negarjan. I'm happy to be back. Happy to have you. Um, so we want to talk about the economy. Let's start from a general overview of where the current state of the Iranian economy is. As I said, years of internal mismanagement, corruption, sanctions, and also the economy post-COVID coming out of this pandemic. Where is it standing right now? Well, right now, um, we are still in the middle of what you call it stagflation, basically stagnation. Uh, and inflation at the same time. You mentioned high inflation. One factor to bear in mind is that uh, it's the first time in recent decades that the Iranian economy has experienced high inflation five years in a row. In the past, we have had high inflation, but in most cases, it was one or two years of high inflation, and then the government managed to um, sort of reduce and contain inflation. But in the past five years, since 2018, the Iranian economy has experienced inflation higher than 30%, sometimes up to 50%. And that obviously eats strongly into what uh, is known as the purchasing power. So the Iranian, the average Iranian family has lost purchasing power, has lost a lot of economic opportunities in the past five years, and it's putting a lot of pressure. So we have a, an economy that's experiencing um, increased levels of poverty and uh, hopelessness. Um, all of these negative factors in economic development are currently being experienced in Iran. Uh, and that is, um, as you can imagine, uh, generating an atmosphere, a climate where people would wish to migrate, and and there is an increase in 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 petty crime, in in many other factors. You mentioned corruption, but that's that has been there for for a long time. But other socio-economic factors are on the rise, uh, creating a, a very gloomy picture at the moment. Mm-hmm. We hear Bijan of. Uh record inflations or at least reports of inflation um and it seems to be uh the result of of these all these various factors that you discussed can you get a little bit deeper into how this happens and then how the average family continues to maintain because the surprise or the question that still remains is how do people continue to go about their lives with such record inflations um, while it also puts this kind of strain and pressure on the especially the middle classes and the um, more lower income classes but what exactly brings about this inflation and what is the direct impact on that on average Iranians? 
So the phenomenon of inflation is obviously a complex one, but the most important driver at this stage uh, has been um, budget deficit. Basically, you have to imagine uh, the government um, defines a, an annual budget and a number of expenditures, both in infrastructure, but also in running expenses of the government. But and and for the past five, six years, the government has been running a very deep budget deficit. This means that the government will have to finance uh, its budget by taking loans from the central bank and other banks. And this budget deficit is basically a driver for, for high inflation. Uh, as I said, it's more complex than that, but that is now the most important factor. High inflation, as I said, means that uh, the average family loses its purchasing power. Um, and uh, what it means for the average family in Iran is that they can afford less and less every year with, with the income that uh, the average family has. Now, one phenomenon in Iran generally for average families, but also for the country, is that there is always a buffer because of assets that one can uh, sell. You know, basically the average Iranian family invests in, for example, gold or hard currency or carpets and other assets that are usually accumulated when the family is doing well. And then when hard times come, like high inflation, uh, one starts to sell those assets. Um, this has happened over the past few years. That's how the average family has survived, you can say financially. But it's also more and more critical every year because a point will come when there are no assets to, to be converted into cash. So the average middle class family that you mentioned is now being pushed into poverty. And the more poverty there is, obviously, the, the more... Um, behavior change you witness. For example, you see, um, you, you read the uh, statistics about, for example, meat consumption. I, I should also say foodstuffs have experienced the highest uh, inflation in Iran over the past couple of years because of some policy changes. I can explain them if you want. Um, but that means that, for example, the average family cannot afford to eat as much meat as before. The average family cannot afford to go as much on holiday as before. So you see behavior changes, you see increased poverty, but you also have some remedies, as I said, the, the assets that the families, especially middle-class families, have, have invested in over the past few years get cashed gradually. So there is, there is a mechanism to cope with this, but not if this goes on for much longer because the, the longer this period of high inflation continues, the, the poorer the average family will become in Iran. Mm -hmm. Yes, let's talk about that policy change because, as you said, obviously we hear of this record inflation in various different aspects of uh, the everyday life, but especially on food, on, on the power to purchase um, food items, while the government has always maintained certain policies or presumably subsidies to be able to provide or at least not let 
food prices be affected. So what is that change that's caused uh, this current situation? Yeah. Um, so basically, the, the policy of the Iranian government uh, until about a year ago was to maintain a very low exchange rate, uh, which was meant to um, sort of offer greater stability in food prices to the lower income classes. So the the very um, low rate of 42,000 reals to the, to the US dollar um, was meant uh, only for what they called the importation of basic foods or basic commodities, sorry, that was food and pharmaceuticals. Um, but it was extremely unrealistic, the rate. In fact, the government was actually uh, selling its um, its hard currency revenues from the exportation of oil uh, at a uh, at a higher price, and then was offering the hard currency for importation of basic commodities at a lower price. In other in other words, it was actually running a major deficit on the exchange rate so that it could generate um, lower food prices or commodities prices. It was uh, it was a big failure. It was a major source of corruption because those people who had access to um, the lower exchange rate were getting exchange rate uh, or hard currency at that rate and then selling it at a higher rate. So it was a, a platform for corruption. It wasn't really providing um, much comfort to the, to the economy. So about a year ago, they discontinued this rate, initially with the goal to unify the so-called exchange rates, because before we had multiple exchange rates uh, with a huge differential, but the lowest rate, as I said, was 42,000 real to the dollars, dollar. And at that time, the highest rate was about um, eightfold that rate, about 300,000 real to the, to the US dollar. When they discontinued the lowest rate, it meant that all these basic commodities would now be imported at a much, much higher rate. Um, as I said, almost eight times the, the previous rate. Now, the expectation was that the government would come up with some sort of a mechanism to, to reduce the inflationary impact on the Iranian society but that never really emerged. I mean, they announced some, some cosmetic changes, but essentially food prices and basic commodities experienced an, uh, uh, an inflation of about 60 to 70% two years in a row. And, and that is obviously another element that's eating into the, uh, into the purchasing power of Iranian families. And I can tell you, as someone who has followed the Iranian economy for, for a long period, over the past three, four years, for the first time in Iranian history, we had actually a higher inflation rate in the rural areas as opposed to urban areas. And that showed that all those mechanisms that the government had put in place to protect the lower income families had actually collapsed. Mm -hmm. um, 
Bijan, let's also talk about corruption. Uh, you mentioned corruption. We know the country, the economy suffers from various forms and levels of the systemic corruption. We hear anecdotal stories in food subsidies, foreign currency allocated for medicine import, COVID vaccines, religious institutions, various different segments of the society and how this corruption has been running deep and really impacting the overall economy. Talk about the systemic corruption, how serious and deep it is, not from these anecdotal stories, but also looking at numbers and big statistics um, and what's really causing it. Um, I, when I started uh, studying the Iranian economy about maybe 25 years ago, I, I remember it very well. Um, one of the very established and very respected business people in Iran um, told me that without, if if we would manage to um, get rid of corruption in Iran, the Iranian GDP would double. Back then, it was an amazing figure, but I can tell you, um, it's still the same. So, in other words, uh, corruption, but along its incompetence and mismanagement are really undermining economic performance in Iran. In my view, there are multiple reasons for this. Um, one is one is cultural. I mean, uh, we have to accept that the Iranian culture is a win-lose culture. So people who have um, access to power or access to resources uh, do not have a win-win attitude. That means that they will use any opportunity to um, fill their own pockets, believing that that's the way to win. And if they don't do it, the other side will win. There is no sense of national interest. There is no sense of, uh, you know, protecting the national economy and, and the, the welfare of the society. So this is this is cultural. But there are also other reasons. There is... Uh, there is always a sense of uh, short-termism in, in many uh, decisions. So if you become, let's say, the managing director or the CEO of a governmental company, you don't view that as a, as a long-term position. You view that as a short-term position where you have to enrich yourself and then move on. Maybe you, that, that's, you, know, you have seen, remember the managing director of Bank Melli who embezzled $3 billion and disappeared and moved to Canada. So there are lots of examples also internally where, where officials and people who have access to resources um, use the opportunity to just enrich themselves rather than uh, help the economy or the society as a whole. There, there, are also, um, there is also the aspect of... Um, the current situation with sanctions and pressure on Iran. See, one of the disadvantages of sanctions for the Iranian economy is the fact that people can justify anything in the name of sanctions. So you, you see a lot of um, situations of smuggling or money laundering or, or corrupt practices where people say, well, this is the only way to do it. Uh, hence, we do it to circumvent sanctions. They don't say we do it to enrich ourselves. They say, they say we do this to circumvent the sanctions so that we can get the supplies that the country need, uh, needs to into the country. So there are multiple factors, but the fact, the fact is that there, the policies 
So you you there are there are a number of opportunities where you can actually um, contain at least the level of corruption. Um, you can use technology. You can use a number of um, other uh, tools to to br- introduce more oversight and and as I said, contain corrupt practices. But the problem is that you are asking the same bureaucracy, the same individuals who are actually involved in these corrupt practices, to come and um, come and correct the system or introduce regulations. So it will take a long um, process, really, with uh, institutional and structural changes and also technological changes to really contain the level of inflation. It's definitely a very sad situation because a lot of the resources of the country that would be needed actually to address issues like poverty um, and um, socioeconomic issues are just flowing into corrupt practices without really having any any advantage for the economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's also talk about sanctions. You did mention sanctions and how it's sometimes used as an excuse for other economic shortcomings. But we also know that years or decades of um, foreign sanctions have really put a strain on the economy. And it's it's also press the Iranian economy or basically political economy to change directions or or shift various forms of manufacturing, changing from imports to domestic productions and really impacting the level of products and goods that Iranians have access to and also just the overall state of the economy. Talk about that, how years of sanctions accumulating and then specifically in the past few years after um, the U.S. left the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, which then resulted in a reimposition of many economic sanctions. And then since then, it's it's really just been accumulating. Talk about the impact of that on the economy and and again, how it translates to the everyday life of an average Iranian. So one uh, one uh, way of looking at it is just to quantify uh, the impact of sanctions. On the one side, the country cannot export as much oil and gas and other uh, export commodities because of sanctions. That means that the economy as a whole becomes poorer because of lack of exports. On the other side, even if the country exports, repatriating the export revenues is a big challenge. Um, And um, that means that even though the economy may produce something, because it can't really access the the proceeds, it's actually suffering as a result. But this is only the, and, and obviously the quantifying part is also if you say, um, for example, um, Iran r- right now has roughly a, um, a, a foreign trade of maybe $120 billion a year. Now transacting this money, both exports and also imports, um, means that you have to basically circumvent banking sanctions. And the average fee that intermediaries charge for these transactions is 6%. So if you take an annual transaction volume of $120 billion, 
6% of that is, uh, you know, $7 billion or more than $7 billion. And, and that, uh, that is a, a cost that is, has been imposed on the Iranian economy right now. Uh, but there is there is more than um, than the the quantitative side of the impact of sanctions. Um, the fact is that it has a massive psychological impact on the Iranian society and especially on the business community. It has a practical element of, for example, a lot of Iranian students who are studying abroad. It's almost impossible to to send money to them uh, because of banking sanctions. And there are a number of other issues. For example, Iranian business people, even though they don't live in Iran, um, they can't open bank accounts because of the sanctions. So uh, I would say um, operational uh, disadvantages, as I mentioned, the, the fact that you can't export as much, the fact that you can't repatriate money, the cost of transacting or the cost of circumventing banking sanctions. Uh, and more importantly for me, the psychological impact of, of the whole process, the feeling that you're, um, you're a, a citizen, the second class citizen internationally, wherever you go with your Iranian passport, with your Iranian identity, you are going to be subject to some sort of sanctions. And that's... Uh, that creates a major impact, especially I can tell you because I, I obviously a lot of in a lot of contact with Iranian private sector people. For the private sector, it's a, a, a sort of humi humiliation, humiliation, um, especially when they are denied access to international finance, access to accounts, access to their own funds uh, sometimes, and that is. That's a major. That has a major psychological footprint on the business community. Bijan, we're also hearing of uh, negotiations between Iran and the West with some Middle Eastern mediators. Um, potential of an agreement or an understanding, as the diplomats like to call it, between Tehran and Washington coming up that could have economic impacts on Iran, see more release of funds. The Iraq, Iraqi government has recently, with permission from the U.S., uh, released about $3 billion uh, in depth that they owe to Iran. Um, there is talks of a potential release, similar release of funds by South Korea, about $7 billion. Talk about um, what you're hearing, first of all, as far as these negotiations, a prisoner swap in the works, and also how it can impact the Iranian economy. Yes, um, I'm. I'm hearing the same, the same things. Meaning that there is a, uh, there are indirect talks uh, through intermediaries like Oman and Qatar, and uh, that the two sides. Uh, are trying to de-escalate, are trying to um, build confidence. Um, and um, that's in general a very positive development. Um, one is uh, in relation to the psychological impact that I was talking about. Obviously, if the relationship is de-escalated, um, there will be more confidence in um, new economic activity, new trade activity, and so on. But there are obviously other uh, other impacts. Um, first, if the prisoner swap um, 
or the swap between Iranian American prisoners hostage uh, as hostages in Iran uh, are released, and on the other side, some of the Iranian funds are released. That will have a, a two-dimensional positive impact. On the one side, one of the key issues, one of the key barriers to the engagement uh, of Iranian, the Iranian diaspora in Iran will be partly removed if uh, the long-held uh, Iranian Americans are, are freed from Iranian prisons. Uh, but the, on the other side, if really some of Iran's internationally held funds are released and can be used uh, to the benefit of the Iranian economy and the Iranian people, it will definitely have a positive impact. Um, the other aspect of it if, is if the de-escalation really goes further and, and Iran manages to um, export more crude oil and other products, and generate more revenue for the economy, that will definitely also have a positive impact. Uh, remember that one of the key issues that has led to high inflation and stagflation is the fact that Iran is facing a large budget deficit, and that budget deficit could be reduced if the country can um, export more petroleum products, uh, oil, gas, and other products, but also repatriate those funds. So all in all, it could be something positive, and I really hope that it happens, uh, but obviously we will have to wait and see what happens. There are enough spoilers, unfortunately, within the Iranian system that could undermine a positive development like this. Mm -hmm. And Bishan, let's also talk about the domestic aspect. We know months of anti-government protests across Iran after the killing of Masa Jinamini, the young Kurdish woman, in September of last year. And also the fact that the underlying reason behind many of these protests is political, social, cultural, but it's also the economic situation. Talk about how the protests themselves and this these economic grievances, political economic grievances, have a reverse effect themselves on the economy, the state's response and the uh, piling up of these various levels of, of grievances. First of all, I really think that uh, the Iranian uh, political system, the Islamic Republic of Iran, has lost its, uh, I, I would call it, its social capital. I would say that the revolution itself um, and the, the, the Islamic government uh, had, let's say, a minority segment of the society as its uh, supporters, and uh, they have lost that, in my view, because of three different aspects. One was, uh, in my view, in January 2020, the shooting down of the Ukrainian plane, where the Iranian people could very uh, clearly see that um, the government was lying, and it was lying on, on, on its own uh, media. Uh, the second factor, in my view, was the mishandling and mismanagement of the corona crisis, where again, people could see the level of incompetence and the level of mismanagement very clearly uh, in front of their eyes. And the third one was the increased poverty. I mean, the, the, the economic downside of the, 
developments of the past few years and the loss of purchasing power, all of these put together, in my view, uh, uh, created enough um, discontent and anger with um, the political, economic, social realities on the ground. Uh, and w obviously the clear consequence were the, the protests of the past uh, year. Um, in my view, uh, the, the economic and the socioeconomic costs of these protests are, are very high. The most uh, obvious one, in my view, is, is um, migration. The migration factor in Iran, the, the, the brain drain, uh, which obviously puts pressure on the on the economy when you don't have the the experts that you need uh, for the various economic and industrial activities. Uh, partly you lose them to brain drain and migration, but and partly you lose them to hopelessness. The the fact that many Iranians are um, not hopeful about the future of the country and the economy also has a negative impact on, on economic performance, uh, cultural, uh, social performance, and so on. So I think Iran as a country, Iran as a nation, is definitely um, uh, paying a high price for the politi political real realities on the ground, for, the, as I said, the level of incompetence and mismanagement and so on. And in some cases, it translates into street protests, but more than street protests today, we have uh, this, these um, psychological factors that I mentioned. People um, are, are uh, disenchanted uh, with, with the realities on the ground. And if they don't see uh, a degree of hope, uh, a degree of positive outcome, and that's why this potential mini deal, less for less deal, or whatever you want to call it, understanding with the U.S. could be the first glimmer of hope in a society that suffers from hopelessness and, and as I said, disillusionment um, and anger. There are there are a lot of emotions right now that we can list that have a direct impact on the society as a whole, but also on the economy. And finally, Bijan, I want to ask you about the role of the diaspora, as you correctly mentioned, the brain drain and how these various economic incompetences and the situation in general is, in fact, adding to that level of, of all the bright minds leaving the country. We also saw the diaspora being activated or increasingly active, especially in the past few months, year or so, various initiatives in the diaspora uh, with the goal of trying to help or bring solutions, policy recommendations to the country and looking at a brighter future. How do you see the role of the diaspora in potentially helping or having positive impact on Iran's various different problems and mainly the economic situation? Well, the, the potential of the Iranian diaspora is very high. We know they are uh, not only in terms of um, capital uh, controlled by the Iranian diaspora, but also in terms of knowledge and expertise. And in fact, Iran exactly needs these things. Iran needs investment and Iran needs knowledge and, and uh, skills that definitely the Iranian diaspora could offer. The problem is that there are 
powerful elements inside the Islamic Republic that uh, in, in fact are involved in various campaigns, including arresting of dual, dual nationals to uh, deter the Iranian diaspora of getting engaged um, in, in the Iranian economy. And that's the same win-lose mentality that I mentioned earlier. If you only think about your own benefits and not the benefit of the Iranian nation, not the national interest, then you sort of bar the Iranian diaspora from engaging in the economy and in cultural activities and other activities. So the potential, as I said, is very high. Any other reasonable government in the world would um, would be uh, strongly engaged with this diaspora to try to bring uh, not only capital, but also knowledge and, and contacts and international presence back to the country. But what we are seeing right now in the case of Iran, apart from some uh, occasional sporadic uh, cases where you see uh, a, a member of the diaspora trying to do something positive for the Iranian society or economy, what we are witnessing is is a is a political regime, political structure that does not welcome the diaspora, and that's very sad because um, I always remember this one sentence that Bill Clinton said once. He was talking about the U.S. He said. Um, there is nothing wrong in the U.S. that cannot be uh, tackled with what's right in the U.S. I think this we can say about Iran as well, that there is nothing wrong about Iran as a whole, including its diaspora, that could not be tackled by what is right in Iran. But um, in my view, um, that, that will take a completely different political structure to be able to attract all these resources and, and help them. And just one word about the behavior of the Iranian diaspora during the, um, the protests of 2022, there were also a lot of extreme actions uh, on behalf of the diaspora, which one could again look at uh, through the psychological lens. Obviously, there is also a lot of anger and sense of loss and sense of disorientation among the diaspora. And it's very sad that um, we are dealing with so many psychological uh, trauma um, um, that uh, sometimes we don't understand and we allow that trauma to, to impact our, our political and, and otherwise behaviors. I hope that we can find a balance where we can actually use and utilize our, our many resources to the benefit of Iran rather than to the benefit of um, selected uh, networks or selected individuals. Well, here's to hoping um, for a better future. And on that note, Bijan, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the Iran podcast. Thank you for inviting me and I look forward to our, our future dialogue. All the best. That was Bijan Khajapur, a managing partner at UNEPA based in Vienna and Austria. 
and he's a leading analyst of Iranian political and economic affairs. And thank you for listening to the Iran podcast. You can find us on all major podcast apps. So please subscribe to us and leave a review and rating to help us be seen and heard by more listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. And you can support our work by going to Spotify for podcasters and the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi. And until next week, goodbye. Thank you.